Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 394 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. Hello, Adam. How you doing? Good. How are you? I'm good. We were doing the podcast magic of acting like we didn't just record a whole episode. Correct. Um, yeah. So today's episode, I'll just get right into it. Uh, today's episode is an interview I did with Holly Black, who I think in the introduction, I call her the queen of fairies, which is pretty accurate. Um, she has a new book coming out called The Queen of Nothing. And if you are, if you've a fan, how can I describe this? If you are a fan of young adult books, uh, you definitely have heard of Holly Black and her uh, her various books that are based in Elfheim. Uh, it's the Folk of the Air series, and the uh, first one was The Wicked King. Uh, sorry, the first one was The Quill Prince, and then The Wicked King. And then Queen of Nothing that comes out this week is the uh, the last of the three. So we had a whole bunch of fun talking about how she created the magic in her world and um, what she... She writes a lot about elves and uh, and fairy and, and fae. And so this was an entirely new experience for her, though, because the entire world is set there. Or the entire story is set in that world. And uh, it was just interesting to hear from someone who's so deep into that world, the books that she reads, and things of that nature. Um, this was the one that I talked about a few weeks ago where there were, like, no advanced reader copies. So they sent me one of the, like, 100, and then I wasn't allowed to tell anyone that I had read it. So... Wasn't even allowed to put on Goodreads until like this month. Um, it's a very, very big deal. The print run of this book is, I think it's like 1.5 million. That's just it's, unfathomable. It's insane. Um, it will be, like, it'll debut at number one. It'll all that jazz. Um, but Holly is one of those people where she's just like super down to earth. And like, if you would, if you would meet her, you'd probably think she was an author because she has like colorful hair and like sure. has that look. But other than that, you'd just be like, oh, you're just a normal person, not a massive bestseller who's incredible. So um, I'm excited for you guys to hear this finally because I've been sitting on it since like August. Um, If people want to get a hold of us, how can they do that? They can visit our website, professionalbooknerds.com. From there, you can get our social links. We are on Instagram and Twitter at ProBookNerds. You can email us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. Yes, you can. And as Joe mentioned last week, if you are doing our Professional Book Nerds reading challenge, uh, you've got about a month left to send those in to us. Um, but just shoot us an email with your completed list and you'll be entered to win something from us. And if you don't know what that's about, just look at our pinned tweet on Twitter and you'll learn all about it. Um, I think that's everything. Yeah. Okay. Well, I won't keep you guys waiting any longer. I will let you get to this very magical interview with Holly Black on the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. Hi, everyone. It's Adam, and I cannot tell you how excited I am for our guest today. I am going to be chatting with Holly Black, who is the author of best-selling contemporary fantasy books for kids 
and teenagers. You may know her from her Spiderwick Chronicles books, the Modern Fairy Tale series, the Curse Worker series, Doll Bones, which I love, The Coldest Girl in Cold Town, and the books that we're going to be talking about uh, right now is the Folk of the Air series, which the last of the trilogy, The Queen of Nothing, comes out in November. We're talking in August, and I got to read it early, and I hate that I can't tell anything about it, but we get to talk about it now, and then I can pretend like this conversation never happened for a few months. So, The Queen of Fairies is with me. Holly, thank you for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me, Adam. It was fun. <laughs> so, uh, we always love to kind of start our conversations by letting the author sort of introduce our listeners to the book. If you want to do like a quick introduction to the series, you're more than welcome to. We were just talking about how not a lot of people have read Queen of Nothing just yet. So if you don't have your elevator pitch fully down, that's perfectly okay. But I'll give, I'll give it a try. So The Queen of Nothing is the concluding volume in the Book of the Air series. The previous books were The Cruel Prince and the Wicked King. And they tell the story of a human girl named Jude who was raised in fairy by the murder of her parents. And sort of her journey in this whole series has been to decide how far she's willing to go for power and how much like she how much she's like the person who raised her and how much she's willing to be like the person who raised her. Um, and it's also about the youngest prince of Elfame, who is a fairly rotten person. <laughs> and um you know, I think uh, his journey is whether he will become a better person. Yeah, I'm I'm going to steer so far away from the plot of the third book just to be safe. I don't want, uh, <laughs> you know, your and, publishing team to yell at me. But something that I love, which is throughout the series, is you really focus on the power of, of words. Um, just this thing that people will, will soon learn if they haven't read the first two books or if they have, they'll know you know the 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 people of fairy do not have an but they cannot lie they have to always tell the truth or, or some form of the truth i have to imagine mm-hmm. as a writer that was probably a fun challenge for you it, it is it is fun and i think you know as a writer you know i'm interested in lies <laughs> i mean that's what i do right my life for a living and you know the thing is ideally right those those lies add up to some kind of deeper truth some kind of emotional truth um and it is really one of the things that I love about fairies that they can't lie, and yet they are completely deceptive. You know, yeah, <laughs> it's, absolutely. It's, no, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say I, you're you're absolutely right. I and that's one of my favorite things is every time one of the fairies says something, I my brain started percolating. I'm like, okay, especially I feel like in the first in the first book, you're able to really like pull the rug out from under readers and like just kind of blow everyone's minds with the the way that their words come back to kind of, you know, bite you in the butt a little bit. Um, Several times, in fact. But but by by reading the second and third books, I literally was like, okay, how is Holly doing this? Like, I feel, was there pressure for you to really keep those twists coming? Definitely. Uh, But I feel like it's the pleasurable path the mystery writer makes with readers that you give all the information and you still are able to hopefully surprise the reader with the outcome. That's really that. It's always it's like the Agatha Christie thing. Like every time right. I read a, a Poirot book, I assume I know what's going to happen, and then my mind is still blown every time. I think you're right. But like the right, the honest mystery writer has to put everything there. That all the clues have to actually be there, and and that's the. I mean, that is the thing that is 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 hard. Is because nobody can lie. You, you have to put everything on the table. 
as someone who has such a rich history in in fairy tales did kind of, did building this world you know in in the onset did it feel like it came naturally to you or did you have to work really hard to make it feel unique but still familiar for you know people who have long time been fans of yours or fairy tales well when i started you know with um tithe which came out back in 2002 mm-hmm. so i was you know i was looking at a lot of books of folklore i was looking at a lot of you know fairy tales and i was trying to um you know figure out what kind of fairy world would feel right to me and would feel like both the folkloric and modern and you know that was its own challenge and i think the thing with the folk of the air books that was tricky was that i had never written a series that was entirely inside fairy mm. and narrated by somebody who even though she's human is an insider in that world like she isn't being brought in and having it explained to her you know she's lived there her whole life and so it felt a little bit closer to writing high fantasy mm-hmm. than writing the kind of contemporary <laughs> fantasy that I've been writing up till then. I'm so glad that you said that because I think something that's so interesting for me for this particular series of yours is that there's, I feel like when I read a lot of fairy tales and, and folklore, traditionally there's, uh, you know, the fairylands are, at least for the human characters, they tend to be like a space for them to escape to and sort of start a new journey. But for for Jude, there's so much danger there because, you know, her and for her sisters, obviously, that this land, which is normally reserved as like escapism, it's where mm-hmm. they grew up and they, they have to kind of be in a constant state of fear. Mm-hmm. I, did that, like, did, did that help you shape how the characters saw the world? Yeah, I mean, I think that that was the the initial idea really was the idea of these girls being kind of kind of reverse changelings, you know, these girls being taken by the murder of their parents, who um, was once married to their mother, you know, back to fairy, and raised there in this state of of um, tension, and. Um, to the point where I think I think that's the only place that Jude could have become the character that I was interested in telling, which is a character who's very, very good in stressful situations, <laughs> but not good in non-stressful situations. She's not good at, you know, being, like, at, at things being calm or nice or normal. Um, you know, she only knows how to function within this sort of state of um, uh, espionage and, you know, potential assassination and scheming and... Um, she feels at you know most at home there, but you know it's not necessarily it's not good to be constantly in that in that place of you know constant near panic. Well, and I think it kind of makes sense for her, you know, after what people you know will learn through the first book about her upbringing. Like, I think it sort of makes sense that she reacts best to those moments where you know she really doesn't have a safety net or really any other choice but maybe to be a little bit evil herself, just mm-hmm. because. That's you know that was the world that they they were were brought up in. I think it really kind of shows you what can happen to a character, you know, or really you know a person even in our like society when there's really no place of safety for them. Right. I mean, she's 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 hyper vigilant, and she is <laughs> you know been raised in a moral system that is not a human moral system. And uh, did you enjoy having the ability to? 
have basically every character have at least a little good and a little bad in them, except for Oak, who I will defend. I love Oak more than I love, I think, anything like outside of my dogs. I will defend Oak to the death. Um, but the, the, a good kid. He's yeah. a little kid, though. I, yeah, I know, but just, I feel like Oak was so, he, Oak is like this little sprite of pureness that you get, you know, here and there, like every couple of chapters mm-hmm. or so, but did you enjoy being able to not have to constrain yourself to a character that is wholly good or wholly bad all the time? I mean, definitely. I mean, I'm not sure that I... I'm not sure that I know how to write a character that's wholly good or wholly bad. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think I am interested in... in um, I'm interested in characters who make mistakes. And I'm interested in, you know, people who are working for yourself. <laughs> so often I find myself, you know, writing fairly ambiguous or morally ambiguous characters and uh, do you it's interesting do do you think that while you're doing that for you know you mentioned high fantasy and and these folklore style tales like do you find yourself using that as a way to sort of show people what it you know what it looks like in in the real world because i find that that's often true for like fantasy stories where you can use another world to show people what it's like here, but you can do it a little bit, you know, in like a, a safer space of where there's, you know, magic and, and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, I think, um, you know, whenever we're, you know, fantasy is always also metaphor. I think it has to function as fantasy to, um, too. But I think, you know, it, 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 it never gets away from being, you know, a way to talk about ourselves and the world, you know, as, as all stories are. And I think, you know, fantasy gives us a new way to talk about familiar things. You know, if you look at the, you know, the story of a werewolf, right? Um, you know, we all sometimes get angry. And when we're angry, you know, we say and do things that hurt the people that we care about. Um, and that, and when we tell stories about that, we tell certain kinds of stories. But when you tell a story about a werewolf, you're not asking, well, why did you do that? <laughs> like, you're asking different questions. And it allows us to explore different ways of looking at, you know, at anger, at lack of control, at, you know, um, you know, whatever kinds of story you might want to tell. Um, and I think, so yeah, I mean, I definitely think that, that telling fantasy stories lets us talk about um, ways people honestly feel um, pushed to extremes and in extreme situations. You know, probably most of us are not going to be, you know, raised by a maniacal red cap an <laughs> assassin right in the court of Elfame. And, you know, but many of us have the feelings of, you know, tension in a space where we are not sure how we belong or how we acquire power, you know, particularly as women, like what does it mean to want power? And I think, um, you know, being able to tell stories that explore that in a very different context, you know, in an extreme context, mm-hmm. I think uh, lets us be in that space and explore those feelings and then come back to our world having had that, you know, having had that hopefully cathartic experience. It's it's interesting that you use, you said you mentioned werewolves because I was, I was thinking a lot about the fact that, you know, with your, you know, the character's, in fairy, you know, the fae that you write, whether it's Cardin or his brothers or, you know, any of the the people that 
mm. are of that world. You know, if you think about werewolves and vampires and these things that are used in kind of horror and, and fantasy tropes that people like to write about, and admittedly I love to read about them, those things are still based in humanity. You know, a werewolf mm-hmm. isn't always a werewolf, a vampire. In, in most cases, other than probably Dracula, was always, a, you know, was a person at some point. Whereas the fairies, they they have you know they look like us, but they're completely they're a completely different you know mindset and and the way that they they look at the world. And I think mm-hmm. that's probably why people relate to your characters so much because they can sort of step out of their own you know comfort zone and, and be you know a little evil or a lot evil if they want to you mm-hmm. know cosplay as Cardin or something like along those lines. No, the, I, I totally agree with you. I think that the alienness of fairy is mm. one of the things that's intriguing about it. You know, like you said, they, they look like us, but they're not us. And they have different moral systems, right? They have different ideas of what is good and bad. They're, for instance, obsessed with courtesy. Um, and they are, uh, you know, famously, the the folkloric quote is that they um, laugh at funerals and cry at weddings. Mm. That they have, you know, they have that. And I think that, you know, one of the challenges with so many fairy characters is to have moments that capture a small amount of that alienness and that disorientation where we think we're in a, you know, we feel like we're in a human space because people are behaving in ways that are, you know, familiar. And then somebody does something and we have to reframe our expectations. Uh, other than the the, the obvious, like, escapism aspect to, to fantasy and, and folk tales. You know, why do you think that we continue to go back to these stories as a society, especially as, as children? Like, you know, I'm a child of the 80s and early 90s, and I think back to some of the stuff that my parents showed me, like, you know, the labyrinth and all the, really all the, the dark hints and stuff, but also like all of the, the folk to- stories we would read at night were really, really dark. Like, why do you think that we all are still attracted to those today? Well, I think that they do um, tell us truths that, um, because they live in metaphor, can, um, I think, can come to us in a deeper way sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we also, I think, believe fairy tales in a way that is kind of interesting um, you know, I've thought a lot about um, action movies. There's often a moment in action movies where someone seems dead, and then they are held or they are kissed, <laughs> and they come back to life. And it is a thing that we see as realism. You know, we, we think, oh, well, that's kind of a, like a, you know, a dramatic moment. But it's very Sleeping Beauty. <laughs> And like I think that stuff really is in our collective unconscious as part of our idea of what, you know, true truth is. And I think that, you know, fairies and fairy tales um, are able to speak to that. You know, there's um, the idea that the, even like things, things that seem sort of arbitrary, like the idea that, that courtesy matters is... You know, it obviously comes from a time when, for instance, uh, you know, the idea of being kind to travelers comes from a time when we didn't really have another way to move through the world but to take really long journeys. And if you weren't kind to travelers, it was extremely dangerous, right? 
yeah. for people who went anywhere. And so that has, has stayed with us, but I think it feels like a deeper truth about people that we need to be kind to travelers because um, it is a way in which we will be able to go through the world together. I think uh, I completely agree with you. And, and I think you do a really good job of sort of extending that. You know, I've been thinking a lot when it comes to series of books about um, like world building versus environment building. And, you know, I think, you know, you a lot of authors and, you know, yourself included, you, you spend, you know, a lot of the first books sort of building this world. But then something that I was struck by, and you talk about, you know, being kind to travelers and, and courtesy and things like that. One of the aspects of the, the these books that I really, really love, and this is going to sound silly, but is like the, the way you use food and drink. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that has a lot to do like with the environment that you set. And I literally found myself when I would read your books, I would find myself like making sure that I made a cup of tea and had some candles lit and like had yeah. some like stuff next to me. Like I wanted to be in that similar environment. Like was that a conscious effort for you when you were building that, you know, setting that environment for whether it was the parties that they throw or the moments kind of like the private moments between Jude and Karin and, and these different things? Like did that, did a lot of thought go into that element of the environment you built out yeah and i think it is um an easy way to um shorthand some of what we're talking about in terms of both the familiarity and also some some degree of distortion right some degree of of unfamiliarity and alienness where if you pick the food right right it tells us a lot of things about the people in the scene and whether this is, you know, food you can relate to or at least relate to in some way or food that, that you feel like, wow, I don't know what it would be like <laughs> to be the person who ate that stuff. Like, that seems like it is in a different space or, you know, you're a different kind of creature. I mean, you will know that <laughs> from reading Queen of Nothing, there's a scene there where the fairies eat something that probably, you know, um, bespeaks a certain degree of alienness. Oh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not going to bring up what you're discussing, but you're absolutely right. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about, but, like, even, I don't know, I I was just thinking a lot, I was joking with you before we started recording, it's pouring rain here, and I told you it's like Holly Black weather to me, like, it feels like I think there's all connected. Actually, kind of, you know, as a weird aside to this, I, I promised the, this a little long tangent we'll, we'll go somewhere but um so my wife and i we we built a house this year and while we were kind of vagabonds the last, thank you while we were and people who listen to the podcast know this so i won't bore them with the story but while we were sort of vagabonds the last like year living with various family members we we love fall and we love autumn and we bought a whole bunch of candles for the fall and so from last year we have like 20 fall candles just more than anyone would need and we have them in a specific uh area of our house that's like closed off it's like a little cabinet and when we went somewhere we have two dogs who are very active so i put your book and i put it in this little cabinet because i didn't want them to get access to it and when i took it out it smelled like autumn and so i'm sitting there and now all i can think of is i want every book to smell like something because i'm smelling these like autumnal smells of like um like cardamom and you know ginger and cinnamon and i'm reading your book and I'm reading about these various feasts and I'm drinking tea. And I just felt like the whole thing was an, an environment. And like, and I think it all started with the way that you built out, like you said, even food and drink that maybe is 
fantastical and not actually available to us in the world, like I think something special goes into writing those aspects where you as an author can make it approachable and relatable and you can actually kind of like imagine what those things would taste like. Well, I think, you know, also, you know, food, food, drink, um, you know, any, any kind of viscerality to is useful in the sense that the more real you make the world, um, I think especially like the more real you make the real aspects of the world and the more real the fantasy will become. Mm. Like, I think, you know, we want to be able to believe that just around the corner, um, you know, out of the side of your eye, you're going to be able to take a wrong step into fairy. <laughs> and I think the more real the real world feels and the more, you know, the, the more concrete things in that fantasy world feel, the more we enter into that. Um, kind of along those lines, because to me it seemed like you were having a lot of fun writing those types of scenes, like the the revelry and and all of that. Like, were there specific characters or scenes you really enjoyed writing? Like, was there a character that you like woke up in the morning you're like, all right, I'm writing about this person today. Let's go! I'm really excited to get down and start writing those words. I mean, there are definitely a lot of scenes that I really love to write, and a lot of characters I love to write. I love writing writing Maddox. I love bad old guy advice. <laughs> I mean, I love like I love all his like terrible strategies, and you know, I like his way of looking at the world. It's you know, it was very enjoyable to write. Um, Holly, that says a lot about you. I I realize that it does. <laughs> <laughs> Those scenes were really fun. Um, oh man, sorry. Go ahead. It's, you know, it's fun. It's it's fun to write Cardin because he is. Uh, it's tricky to write him, but it's. He's a lot of fun to write because he is a character who makes things happen. Um, you know, and I mean, the whole books are, you know, all the books are from Jude's perspective. So, you know, obviously, you know, I wanted to be in her head because she is the most fun. <laughs> um, speaking of, uh, of Maddox, by the way, if people, if people who have read this don't know what we're talking about, but he's a red cap, which mm-hmm. for people who haven't, um, basically he dips a cap that he always wears in the blood of his enemies that he has vanquished. Um, where did that come from? Is that like a real thing? Oh yeah, that's real. That's <laughs> totally real. That's what red caps are. Um, yeah, that's what they do. It's their thing. Everybody's got a thing. Everybody's got a thing. Um, I heard, so I, I, I saw a, a fun video you did earlier this year with uh, your buddy, Cassandra Clare, mm-hmm. and um, one of the questions that they asked you was about being co-authors, and, and I think it, it was your answer that you basically said, like, it was a lot like being a kid, and you could do, you know, basically, you could kind of create make-believe, like like we all did as, as kids, and you could kind of push each other back and forth, and um, if you had an idea and then one of you, you know, if you guys disagreed, you could like work it out and kind of go to a third, third idea. But I'm I'm kind of curious, you know, how do you, when you're writing by yourself, like how do you push back against ideas for yourself? Like, do you start writing and then stop and think like, what would, you know, <laughs> you know, Holly Black be say these, th- to these things? Like, how do you force yourself to look at scenes and, and characters from a different perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's challenging, especially because, you know, my dream, I read a lot of books about how to write, because my dream is I'm going to figure out a method, and that method will lead me to produce an outline, and from that outline, I will just be able to write a book, and I won't change it, you know, 300 times, 
and I won't toss out big ideas and I won't, you know, you know, do all of the things that I do now, which are incredibly inefficient and yet feel like the only way that you get to the book that you really want. You know, I think a lot of times when I'm writing, uh, I have a feeling that there's something wrong and it feels like almost like, you know, your arm is at a joint. It's just wrong, wrong, wrong. But I don't always know what's wrong or how to make it right. And so a lot of times I revisit the same spaces and think, well, what's wrong here? What isn't working? What could happen here? And sometimes the answer to that is requires me to throw out a lot of stuff. And sometimes I convene some friends together and tell them and, you know, sometimes they have some ideas and sometimes they're like, no, it's not wrong, it's fine. But often it's still like, often I'm able to figure out what's wrong with it um, later. And, you know, then they're like, oh, I, I see why, I see why you felt like it was wrong, but it didn't look wrong from the outside. And I think that is the hardest thing, is that sometimes you're telling a story and the story is fine, but it's not right. Well, I, I mean, I know that you're a little bit of a, a pantser. I, um, and not... The thing is, I'm, I, I don't want to be. Like, it is my dream. <laughs> like, I like an outline. I like sticky notes. I like all the things that go with not being a pantser. Well, you know, but if you were like a 100% a planner, it wasn't, a, I think it was Robert Burns of the Best Laid Plans, right? You know, you know right. they're, they're going to change. So you, you can... You know, it. I think it's okay. I am a bit like for this series, this like the you know the trilogy. Did did you know where you were going to end up when you started? Like, did you have at least a, a general arc at all? I had. Um, I knew like I know a lot more than I've actually known starting a lot of series. I knew a lot of what was going to happen in the first book, and I knew some of what was going to happen in the second book, and I knew the big general shape of the third book but there were a lot of things about the third book especially that I didn't know and um, I had a outline in January I guess of last year and um, that I just threw out uh, <laughs> entirely about what I thought was going to be the what were going to be the big movements of, of Queen of Nothing uh, when I realized the thing that I wanted to do, um, I was talking with the um, the writer Sarah Rich Brennan, and she said, "Well, what you're telling, well, I don't even know if I should say this. This is what I guess I would give it away." But um, she told me what kind of story I was telling. Mm-hmm. She made reference to a um, a folk tale, and when she said that, I thought, "Well, I now I know what I want to do." Mm-hmm. But then it was a question of like, "Well, how do I do it?" I'm gonna ask you sorry, when, I, when we're done recording. Sorry. I'm gonna ask you when we're done recording what that folktale was that she referenced. I will. I will definitely tell you. I mean, <laughs> you, you know. Um, and then I came back from that retreat with a new sort of idea of what I was going to do. And I have a, you know, I have a longtime critique partner who's known me since, you know, before Tribe came out. And I was explaining to him, you know, the sort of big movement. And I told him you know, a thing which you probably will know from reading Queen of Nothing, and he was just like, what? How would that work? Why would that, like, why would you want to do that? Uh, um, well, so you can, you can t- I can cut this out if I, when I ask this, if it doesn't, if mm-hmm. it shouldn't be said, because I'm not sure one way or the other, but I'm curious. Um, 
for people who have read the first two books, if they read the books and then they look at the cover, there is a connection to the cover to something that there's no way you can see coming, but it is connected. And something similar on the third one. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any, like, do you have conversations with the people who put together, like, the artists who put together your covers and, and decide, like, what you want to be on there? And again, I can not have any of this in there if you want. Yeah, no, I mean, um, I've definitely talked it over with them, although they don't always know why. Ah, okay. You know, depending on the timing. Mm-hmm. Like, for the third book, I was, uh, you know, I was like, put a snake on there. And they were like, why? And I was like, eh, just put a snake on there. Right. <laughs> All right, that's all I'll ask. I won't say anything else about it. I I was curious. Um, and when we get done recording, I'll tell you why I was so excited about that. But um, <laughs> towards the end of our show, we do what we call the Nerd Nine. So we have nine lighthearted questions. Um, that will steer us clear away from, from your book, so I don't give anything away. Um, but the first one is, what's the last book you finished reading? Mm, you know, I really promised myself I would prepare for this. <laughs> uh, actually, it is, um, I just finished uh, Cassandra Clare's Chain of Gold. Um, we had a little workshop, Chain of Gold. Mm-hmm. Gotta... Not out yet, but I've read it. Um, do you have a favorite place to read? Um, I like reading, I like reading in every place, but um, actually probably on an airplane because I made a deal with myself that I don't have to work when I'm on an airplane and I can just read. And so whenever I'm on an airplane, I now have come to really look forward to it because I know I will be able to read a couple books. That's really, really smart. I See, I'm actually the opposite because... As a person with a full-time job who's an aspiring writer, I and I have two dogs and a lot of chaos in my life, being on mm-hmm. a plane is like one of the few times when I'm sitting in a metal tube and I have nothing to stare at but a notebook, and it actually, I actually get a lot of writing done. <laughs> but I There's totally a story, possibly apocryphal, of someone who needed to finish their book and like booked a flight to Tokyo and back, where they just booked the flight, went to Tokyo, got back on the plane, and came back and finished their book because they were trapped on the plane. Okay, well, I'm going to give myself a few months more, but <laughs> I might get to that point here. <laughs> um, do you remember the book that made you fall in love with reading as a kid? Um, it's probably um, the whole Madeline Langle series. Mm-hmm. I read, you know, the Wrinkling Time books, but also her Meet the Austins books, and there's this weird moment when you realize that this totally realistic series and this fantastical science fiction series are in the same world. Mm -hmm. And it really blew my tiny mind. (laughs) So maybe that, maybe um, uh, the um, Pride Ain Chronicles Mm -hmm. by Lloyd Alexander, which I also really loved and were really my introduction to high fantasy. Um, We were just talking about traveling. So what's one place you'd like to travel that you have not yet been to? Um, I would love to go to Egypt. That's a good one. Do you have a favorite holiday? Halloween. <laughs> Very on brand. <laughs> um, I am who I am. <laughs> uh, coffee or tea? Coffee. Hey, I don't know. There's a whole bunch of tea in, this, in these books. I thought maybe it would be tea. Um, it's a legit choice, but... For you know someone else okay. who doesn't love coffee like uh, I do. All right, uh, cats or dogs? Cats. 
Favorite food? Um, hmm. I don't know why I'm putting these things. I feel like I'm actually, like I'm engaging them. Like, wait, what is my favorite food? <laughs> <laughs> um, dumplings. Ooh, that's a good one. And then, um, if you could have dinner with one person alive or dead, who would you pick? Yates. Oh, that's really good. Okay, last question for you. What do you hope readers take away from reading Queen of Nothing? I mean, I hope that... I think the, the, the sort of questions around power are interesting ones about how, like, it's, you know, um, I think books don't necessarily give answers, but I think they ask questions. And I think that, you know, how much like Maddox June is going to become, how far she's willing to go and, like, where you think she should go are really interesting, you know, questions for me. I mean, I hope, you know, I hope that people like how it turned out. I hope people, you know, feel that it was what they, um, I hope people feel it's a satisfying ending. That is absolutely perfect. Holly, the book is wonderful and you (laughs) are wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh my God. Thank you for having me. Thanks for talking with me. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald, and presented by Rakuten Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.